This episode is sponsored by Exactuals, perfecting insurance payments and the data driving them. Jim, right. thank you very much for joining me today. How's life in Boston? Good? Ah, it's going well. We're, we got some real warm weather coming through and uh, spring is definitely here. So we're all excited. And uh, I think most of our team or all of our team have got the, at least their first vaccine. So that's, oh, that's great. That's lovely. As, yeah. as, as much as I don't, you know, I'm trying to avoid talking about COVID and what it means that always happy to hear that more and more people getting the, the vaccine. I am fully vaccinated myself a few weeks in and, you know, it's actually harder to integrate back to society because I'm asking myself who or where should I go? And at the end of the day, I'm still working from my home office. Now, <laughs> your background doesn't look like a home office. Did you rent a place? Yeah, I, I got tired of working from home. So a couple of months ago, I rented a small office at the Cambridge Innovation Center uh, right across the, the, the river uh, here in Cambridge uh, from Boston. And it's been really nice. It's a enclosed office and nobody really is here. So I get I get my uh, to my whole kitchen, the whole kitchen here to myself. And it's been really nice to have a little break from home. So let's start with a quick introduction. Please, Jim, tell us about your company. What are you guys doing? And, you know, as we progress, I'll ask you a, federal, federal, a few other questions. So we'll get more details. Sounds good. So I am the uh, co-founder and CEO of Energetic Insurance. We started about four years ago, my co-founder, Jeff McCauley, and I. We actually come from the energy industry. So... We simply set out to try to solve a problem, a big problem in energy, and we got directed very quickly to insurance and decided to start an insurance company. So we like to say that a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, and my co-founder is an engineer, a lawyer and engineer walked into a bar and started an insurance company. And honestly, it's kind of how it happened. <laughs> we uh, met over lunches or sometimes over beers and uh, decided that this problem of credit credit in, in, in these energy projects was too big and and uh, actually solvable through insurance. So we, we set out to go do that. But yeah, so the problem that we were dealing with uh, in energy is that all, you know, we started with solar. So solar, wind, these types of, of uh, technologies really need to be financed over a long period of time, 10, 15, 20 years. So if you're a business um, that, and we only deal with corporate uh, commercial uh, projects, we don't do residential. So if you're a business owner and you want solar on your roof, you're probably going to do a, a long-term financing to make that affordable for you. Well, when you go to a bank to get financing, you, the bank asks what your Moody's credit rating or S&P credit rating are. Over 90% of the businesses in the country, in the U.S., don't have a Moody's level credit rating. And therefore, they, the banks weren't able to extend them long-term uh, financing. So we felt that you know, the, the default risk for electricity is very different than other types of loans, right? You can't operate a business without electricity. I can't really think of one that operates without electricity. Therefore, it's really an ex existential uh, payment that the business has to make. And I really... Yeah, I would, love, I would love to say a lemonade stand, not a pun about lemonade, but yeah, but 
Yeah. I, I guess, yeah, a lemonade stand, or maybe if you were selling water on the, on like a hiking trail. I, I, I have, I've been only, only able to think of, of ones like that, but not, you know, let's say 99% of the businesses need electricity. And uh, because it's an existential uh, payment that they have to make an operational necessity, uh, the default risk on electricity is measurably lower than default risk on other loans. And um, so what we did is we, we felt like this mis misunderstanding or mispricing of the risk uh, was, was able to be solved by insurance. We started talking to insurers in the US and in Europe and uh, found a great partner in SCORE, um, the, the UK office of SCORE, uh, to launch a credit insurance product um, that covers up to 10 years of uh, payment default risk on uh, solar and, and other renewable energy uh, loan financing. So I'm, I'm sorry. So it sounds to me like a financial problem. How is that an insurance problem? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a financial problem and we're not covering physical risk. We're not covering damage or um, uh, the production of the, of the electrons. We are covering non-payment, um, but there is a whole group of, uh, a category of insurance that does cover uh, non-payment on long-term contracts, um, uh, long-term financings, long-term receivables. Um, and that, that's generally in the political and, and trade credit insurance department of an insurer. Um, our specific product is, is a trade credit insurance policy that we, it's a manuscript policy. It's, it's similar, but it has some unique electricity aspects to it. Um, and it is a risk that, that's not as common in insurance, but, um, very much a, a, a major part of, of many insurers. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, we're one of the only ones that, of the startups that I know, the early stage insure techs that are doing financial risk and not something related to physical damage. So you managed to create a, so are you an engines, a, a, sorry, are you an MGA? You're writing your own program and that's on the paper by score. Is that their reinsurance side or which, how does it work exactly? Yep. So we're a classic MGA, MGU. Um, we do the underwriting, actuarial pricing. It's our, our policy, our logo on the policy. Um, and score is the, is the paper, the, the insurance paper, our initial capacity provider. Um, so they're, they're the insurer. We do not provide, a, you know, balance sheet, uh, risk as an MGA. Um, but yeah, we do kind of a full stack, um, MGA. And you're working only with commercial. And I think that in the last episode, we learned from uh, Philip Naples that there are about 30 million small business owners in the US and each one of them has its own little thing and a contract and other work and other classes. And if you want to talk about that, Alan Ringwald can talk about their secondary and tertiary class risk. And But for you, basically, you're going to, to talk about energy for... I would say medium-sized businesses or larger businesses, because how many people are actually, how many companies actually have a listing at Moody's? Uh, not very many. I mean, less than 10% in the U.S. I don't have the exact number, but we know it's, so it's not many. It's only 3 million, yeah. right? Still, you have like yeah. uh, 27 million to sell. So there's, a lot, there's a lot, a big market there. Yes. Um, but yeah, it is. It, we started mostly with smaller and medium-sized businesses, um, but we're finding that 
um, it's, it, you know, very quickly we got asked to do larger, larger businesses, larger transactions. A lot of what we do is portfolios of multiple projects. So there might be 25 or 50 different businesses um, that all that that are all um, kind of a one project developer has has installed 50 um, installations mm -hmm. and they go get one single financing for that whole uh, group of 50. And so we have some nice diversity benefit there. Um, so it can be, but it's mostly, mostly medium sized businesses is our sweet spot. That was the initial thesis where the biggest pain point is, but it has expanded out uh, from there. Yeah. I th thank you for actually explaining the sweet spot, the sweet spot, because I was just going round and around and around until you actually mm -hmm. hit it. Energy with usually we think about energy in terms of strategic mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure and all kinds of uh, policies, especially on the green side. Where is the government involved in this? Or is, the, is there governmental involvement? Uh, not directly with the insurance policy, but the government is important for providing, obviously, the insurance regulatory framework, the energy regulatory framework. Um, and uh, in particular, um, a lot of people ask me, you know, how does the new administration, uh, presidential administration, affect us? A lot of this, like what we call distributed generation, which is solar on site, like at your business, um, is more impacted by state regulations than federal. Um, so curiously, uh, we find that states who have strong subsidy programs or uh, some of them have created uh, like tradable uh, uh, renewable energy credits that um, add value to, to the solar. When you install it, you get an extra payment from the government or the utility. That helps uh, with a secondary revenue source to the project to make it more economically viable. Those are very important programs that really help increase the installation rate. Um, so the government is 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 fairly involved, but um, you know I wouldn't say that it is it is the the um, the driving force be, behind all these projects. They really have to do they have to make economic sense um, themselves, and the government can be an enhancement. To help encourage and and uh, increase the rate of installations, which I think is a healthy way to for the government to 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 be involved. I used to work in the government actually in Massachusetts, so we would talk a lot about the the optimal amount of subsidy or or incentive to offer um, to help increase the installations, but not be the sole reason why something's being installed. Apparently, a lawyer who worked at the government and, 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 and an engineer walking into a bar. Please continue. What happened when they met in the bar? Ah, yes. Well, I was I had, I had been working in the government. I ended up leaving the government to work developing solar projects. So it's important to note, I talked about banks and financing earlier. There's three parties involved in these transactions that I think is important to understand. There's the business owner that buys the electricity. There's a solar project developer, similar to commercial real estate, who will be the construction company. They'll get the permitting. They'll work with the utility company to actually install, own, and operate the solar. They receive the electricity payment from the business owner. And then that project developer goes out to banks and equity investors to get the financing for it. So there really is three parties there. And the insurance policy is bought by the uh, project developer 
to get to help provide confidence that they're going to get paid for electricity so that they and then turn can pay their debt lenders and, and, and investors. So that's the structure of it. But uh, yeah, how, do we, how does the engineer and the lawyer get to this? I was trying to develop projects at, at, a, at a solar development company. Jeff was at a different uh, energy company trying to develop solar projects. And we just, we would find these great businesses. They had been around for many years. They were 10, 20, $50 million annual revenue businesses. And we thought they were great, great businesses to produce solar. And we would get rejected by bank after bank after bank or investor after investor. And, they, and the reason was credit. And so that's really what frustrated us. We're like, but this is not a lot of risk here. This business has been around for 25 years, 50 years. They, they pay their bills. And uh, so that, that was really what drove us to it. And we quickly found that insurance does this in many other industries, airline leasing, uh, other, other forms of receivables. Um, and and uh, so we just adapted what the insurance industry was already doing to solve this unique risk in, in energy. Can you share with us how many projects you are involved at this point? So by the time this airs, um, we should be passing 150 uh, individual solar projects um, that we've covered with our policy. Um, so quite um, pretty proud of that. I, I, you know, it was definitely a little slow there in the beginning of COVID, but things have worked out, um, worked themselves out. The market's kind of back to mostly back to normal. Um, so we're at 150 now and, and looking to grow even more throughout the rest of this year. Who um, are you working with, Will, or did you start with Adrian? We started with Will Thorne at mm -hmm. SCORE, and we also work with Dana Cullen uh, on the team. Um, so we actually started, interestingly, we had started by talking to U.S. insurers mostly and ended up finding that um, the London markets are very, they have a lot of experience in credit insurance. That's where a lot of credit insurance is written, but they also just have a very, you know, that's where insurance started and that, um, and, and they have a very open and kind of innovative approach. Um, I think that London also, they seem to be very collaborative among insurers, which is interesting. You know, they might for a new risk, maybe they'll have three or four insurers that each share the risk. Um, so we found a very receptive audience in London. Um, actually, I met Will Thorne at the very first ITC, InsureTech Connect, in 2016. Uh, it was the very first one, I think, um, and uh, maybe there was about 600 people there or so. And uh, I remember being in the convention center, and I think it was my second meeting. Um, remember they had the, uh, you would stand on a number, and then the person would walk up, and then you would have your 15-minute meeting. So I, I remember that with Will, and I, I, I think I had, I don't even, I, I think I had print, yeah, I printed out business cards. I made up a company name because we were, I was about to jump on a plane. I convinced my wife that we were going to use my miles to go to, to I was going to go to this conference. I had uh, jumped on a plane, made up some business cards, made up a company name, and showed up with an idea and maybe something written on the back of a napkin, but that was about it. And Will didn't laugh me out of the room, um, but didn't jump on it right away either. He gave me, he gave me a year or so to, to flush out the idea uh, with Jeff. Um, but by the next ITC in 2017, um, Will, Will had, had, come, had scheduled a meeting with me and said, you know, I've been thinking about what you, what you pitched to me last year. 
and I think it has, uh, you know, an opportunity there. And so we spent the next, oh, six or nine months um, working with SCORE to really refine the concept, uh, come up with underwriting guidelines and refine the actuarial modeling and, and get into policy wordings and uh, eventually uh, agreed on a binding authority with them to be the initial capacity provider. So I would say, yeah, InsureTech Connect had a lot to do with um, us being able to meet and uh, the London, the kind of receptiveness of the London uh, insurers to uh, innovative new risks, I think was also very important. Yeah, you know, we keep talking about InsureTech Connect. We'll give a shout out to Jay and Caribou that started this amazing uh, operation nowadays. It's not on my LinkedIn, but I'm doing a little bit of uh, consultancy work with those guys and it's amazing team. And, you know, we, there are a few people that everyone knows from uh, Bill, Josh, Samara, Terry, especially in the partnerships, but there are so many people without this, uh, in this operation that make sure that we have this amazing habit of every year to meet in Vegas. Well, minus 2020, but this year it's going to be it's going to be there again, and that's uh, going to be a lot of fun. Is it only the two of you? What's the size of the team? Because one of the challenges that most of the, let's call it, insurtech startups, uh, you know, will we'll continue with the joke of a lawyer and engineer entering a bar. Usually it's an engineer and engineer or, you know, a marketing genius with another uh, third time uh, unicorn uh, founder how don't you miss or didn't you miss the insurance part that third uh, founder that knows insurance how did you how did you manage to overcome that challenge yeah that's a great question i very early on i have we had some friends that uh, a couple of my college buddies were work in insurance and that was the first thing i asked them is like you know we should probably get someone who works in insurance and they're like you know what Remember, this is 2016 when InsureTech was still a new word. So insurers were still, you know, Excel was a very advanced technology for them. Um, no offense to insurers. I think they would be the first ones to agree with that. Um, many of them still had fax machines as their primary mode of communication. Um, and so my friends in, in insurance, they said, no, don't bring on an insurance person. You guys focus on the problem in this problem solution, product market fit you know, come at it from the the industry expertise that we have in energy. And even SCORE said that. They're like, you know, insurers have a lot of smart people that work there. What they don't have is industry expertise in every single possible industry that exists. So that's why they want MGAs. And they said, keep that, keep that fresh energy focused perspective. You'll get the insurance help. You'll, you'll develop the knowledge and you can bring on insurance people later. So that's, that's what we did. We trusted them. And I think, you know, could we have maybe understood some things faster, moved a little faster in certain ways with insurance? Yes. But other, uh, but the, the people who advised us said that um, if we brought on too many insurance industry veterans too quickly, um, they might not um, see the, you know, they might try to drive you to a pre-existing solution when maybe you need a more innovative solution, or maybe you need to combine two types of policy wordings together. So actually we did that. We've, we pulled our policy wording from elements of surety, elements of business interruption. Um, we didn't just have a existing policy form that we 
that we pushed into solving a problem. The way I like to say it is like, sometimes insurance has a solution searching for a problem. We had a problem that, that, that searched for a solution in insurance and we adapted and in, in insurance and, you know, kind of the insurance industry and us kind of adapted to solve it. So, I'm, I mean, it was definitely a different way to do it, but um, it's, we've, we've uh, really stayed close to the customer, close to the problem and where our bespoke solution set, I think is what's allowing us to get the traction that, that we, we've got so far. That's an interesting approach. And I need to remind myself that you are part, in terms of the timing, you are still part of the first generation of the InsurTechs because uh, yeah. I think that the a few people that they interview recently, uh, they are part of the third generation. If it's a, a layer, so uh, Philip Naples, uh, Ben Monroe from Brisa or David uh, McFarland from, from Coterie, all of them were in insurance. They used to work in insurance and they left the insurance, you know, well, with except with Philip was a broker all, all sort of all of his life. Uh, but those guys were executives who left that big company to start the startup. So that's where we see that development. And here you are still, you know, let's call it the, the first, the first generation, which is only four or five years ago. It's like one yeah. of the entrepreneurs like, hmm, I see a problem. I need to fix that solution. And apparently we can just hire or rent the insurance know-how from somewhere else. And it's a bit, you know, based on what you're saying, better yet not to, or at the beginning. Yeah. So nowadays- I'm glad also someone? that we do. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm glad that we also had the opportunity to develop our own knowledge. If we had relied on an expert I don't think we would have learned as much as quickly as we did. Um, so that was helpful. And, I, and honestly, though, you, you're right. Like, this is more of the third wave. If I was to talk to somebody who was starting an InsurTech today, I think the insurance industry has enough, gone through enough innovation cycles that, you know, a lot of people that work are the incumbents would probably um, be able to understand the innovation process um, in, in a more intimate way than maybe you had uh, at, back in 2016, where it was still a relatively new thing. Yeah, you needed the fresh blood. You are part of that fresh blood that came in six years ago, five years ago. Yeah. Oh, that's that's super cool. Mm. Uh, what's the size of the team nowadays? Um, so we're very lean. Um, we and and we probably would have hired a few more people during COVID, but we did want you know with all the uncertainty, we we slowed on hiring. But we, including some part-time people, we have seven um, of FT full-time equivalents. Um, and um, so we're still a super lean company, uh, but I think we will be, we are, I was just earlier today writing a series of job descriptions. So we'll be out in the market and, and probably grow the team to uh, maybe 10 or, or more by the end of the year. And as we say, soon an announcement will come. Always soon an announcement will come. That's the, yeah. that's the life of, an of a startup, yes. It, it's always, um, it's between, I just finished raising, I'm about to start a raise, and I would like to celebrate this milestone of, you know, revenue, new customers, new strategic partnership, and we have a new t-shirt and amazing swag for it. <laughs> yes, you gotta have the t-shirts. Who are your investors? Um, so we have some really 
uh, awesome investors. Um, uh, we have our, our, our seed round was led by Congruent Ventures. Um, and actually, the interesting thing, we work at the intersection of energy, clean energy, insurance and finance. So we have a collection of investors that kind of represent all those areas. Um, Congruent Ventures is one of the um, leading uh, clean tech VCs in Silicon Valley. Um, they've been around for, for quite a while um, and uh, they led our seed round. Uh, we also on the clean tech side have Powerhouse Ventures, um, which uh, Emily and her team, they have a, uh, they were really originally well known for um, like an incubator and event space. And they're a big convener of, of the clean tech scene out there in Oakland and, and the Valley area. And then they opened a VC fund. So we were one of their first investments as a VC fund. Um, they have a lot of LPs from the, uh, from the energy industry, veterans from the energy industry. Um, we also have on the uh, FinTech side, Clock Tower Technology Ventures, um, yep. which is out of uh, uh, LA uh, in your neck of the woods. Um, and I think that's, didn't we meet, didn't we decide that we met at one of the Clock Tower events? Is that where we met originally? I think so. I think that, yeah. I don't know, it was Ben or Ned, one of them made a connection mm. or that's how we connected early on, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yep. So yeah, Clock Tower has uh, been an awesome VC and I really like, um, they, they write smaller checks than, than a lot of FinTech VCs and they get uh, as involved or as not involved as you want. They're really founder friendly. Um, so highly recommend them on the FinTech and SureTech side. Um, we also have Muse, which is a New York based um, uh, investor. Um, they're into fintech and, and have some a lot of commercial real estate background. I mean, we we deal with solar on buildings, so commercial real estate is important to us. Um, it, it it factors into how we evaluate buildings, and and obviously the landlords oftentimes are the cust are the ones that want the solar. So being well networked in in that area has, has been helpful to us. Um, and then we have Clean Energy Venture Group out of Boston, which is a collection of angels, and we have several other assorted angels wow. um, that that came in in our in our initial um, pre-seed angel round. Now I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but how much did you raise, and how much you are look? Are you entering a new round soon? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about being in the clean tech space, which in share tech people can be jealous of sometimes is that we were able to get a lot of grant funding initially. So we got, um, we raised our, we raised a angel round in 2017, of a little over 600,000. Uh, and, and after right at that enabled us to get uh, an $850,000 federal department of energy grant um, called Sunshot. Um, and so we got a large, large amount on non-dilutive um, and then we've raised grants from the New York Energy Agency and the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center. Um, so all in maybe about a, a little, probably well over a million dollars in grants. Um, and then after that, we raised. I can see a few founders going like, what? Is that free money? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I, I, I be, it would have been, it really helped us too, because, you know, we were, we were, entering into some challenging territory it's rather complex what we had to do and the software that we that and, and the technology that we had to develop to underwrite efficiently and have be able to underwrite uh volume uh with a small team um and so that that grant funding was instrumental and uh i think also helped the un investors realize that their money would go further so yeah if you, if you have access to it um and and go for it uh it's, it was really helpful 
Um, after that, we did raise a full seed round of 2.75 million. Um, and that's the one that Congruent formally led. Um, and then since then, we've been um, preserving runway and being very efficient and scrappy and uh, keeping, uh, keeping ourselves lean. And we'll see what, uh, you know, probably, probably looking to raise uh, a little bit later this year uh, to really uh, propel growth. Well, if you're keeping yourself lean and you need to raise, it's usually an indicator of growth. And especially when you can show that growth and traction by number of projects and the size of projects, I'm sure that people will be very, very happy about that. Will you run out of capacity from SCORE? Are you, going, are you looking for other partners and papers? Um, I think, well, so SCORE has been, been great and they're a very large company. I mean, we're, our individual transaction size maybe is around, oh, 500 to $2 million, 500,000 to $2 million in, in limit. So not, not uh, too big for an individual project that a large insurer like that couldn't take down themselves. But uh, given the collaborative nature of how the London market works and, you know, our ambitions to take on larger risks and more and, and, and grow our, grow our, uh, uh, our book, um, we do anticipate um, that that will need additional capacity providers um, uh, going forward. And, you know, SCORE has always kind of recognized that and, and told us that, that that would be a, a prudent thing to do and that they'll be collaborative in helping us, uh, you know, with their network and other people that we've met along the way. So that 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 will be in our future um, is to expand capacity um, as we as we grow project uh, the, the limit on the, the policy limits in particular. Well, I'm sure that one or two syndicates uh, from London will be happy mm -hmm. to pick that glove and figure out how to work with you because most of the time they need that MGA to turn, you know, to bring in the risk and they will take care of the coverage. Cool. That's very cool. Yeah. What's, uh, what's next for you guys? I know that you already covered it and it's a very open question that I like to ask. What's next for 2021, 2022? So what we want to do is grow. We started with solar specifically. It's a very proven technology, very common technology. And we want to grow into other technologies, uh, get more into battery storage, fuel cells, energy efficiency. So growing out uh, the same products, very similar or the same underwriting methodology, but just with uh, diff different and newer technologies and then grow uh, geographically as well, because this problem of credit is is a worldwide issue um, and uh, sometimes even more acute in other foreign jurisdictions. And again, our underwriting methodologies and, and process is fairly similar to expand geographically, just a matter of licensing and, and uh, regulatory compliance. So a lot of uh, the money that we're planning to raise would go towards both technology, you know, expanding to new technologies and expanding to new geographies. Now, in terms of geography, are you looking at, let's say, inside the U.S. states that provide the different grants mm -hmm. or tax credits, or are you looking into other countries that provide the same uh, kind of uh, support to make sure that more businesses adapt solar? Well, wind is less, but battery, especially as Tesla growing their, their offers. I don't know if it's working on the same thing or it's just a trend that may caught up by Tesla's mm -hmm. competitors. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, first there's some U.S. states that don't have as aggressive solar policies, but still want renewable energy. 
Um, so that is that is a new market. Um, and, and you'll know from the insurance industry that in the US, we basically have 50 different insurance markets and insurance regulations. And so it's almost like going into a new country every time you go to a new state. So we'll definitely have some new states, um, but also new countries um, and Canada, Europe, um, would probably would be our first uh, stop, uh, and then emerging markets hopefully after that. Cool, very cool. So we are reaching the end of our conversation. So I'll ask you the same question that I'm asking everyone at the end. Can you provide us a mm -hmm. recommendation of a book, a TV, I don't know, a show, movie, or just a life hack that you picked up in the past year? Yeah, can I do, can I do one and a half? You can do 2.3. All right. So my my first one is quick. Uh, for, for anyone that wants to found a company or if you've already started that process, um, make time for yourself and especially for like physical exercise. And I would say count, like put it in your calendar. Something that I didn't do, I thought I'd be able to keep the, the, the personal side and work-life balance. But I would say the exercise is critical because it can be really long nights you know, you're eating on the road, you're not really, uh, your body isn't keeping up with your mind. And that would be my first one is like calendar time for exercise and family time and time off. Um, and but my my book recommendation sort of or my reading recommendation is, is actually not to read certain things. And uh, so I figured I'd take the other angle. So what I did, uh, I forget who told me this, but a couple like two years ago, I stopped reading daily news. So like news on the 24 hour cycle. And I think it's really helped me with focus, like trying to start a business and not getting distracted by the latest crazy political thing happening or some celebrities tweet that, you know, got them in trouble. And when you do, when you get off the clickbait 24 hour news cycle, and I just read weeklies and monthlies and, do, and listen to podcasts. And my, my thesis is that if it's important enough to last a week uh, in the news, then I'll read about it and I'll know it. And if it's not, then I won't. And then it's been really a really illuminating thing for me is to, is to actually not read something uh, that I normally, that I used to read for so long. And so I've, I've subscribed to some um, uh, new magazines um, and new podcasts. And that's been just a wonderful thing uh, for, for mental health, but also just for like not getting distracted with the day to day. That would be my life hack slash reading advice. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, I tell you, since I stopped reading, like spending time on the daily news, my I think my attention spans increased. And I've actually read, I think, already three or four books this year. I probably read three or four books all of last year. So it's it, I'm reading more long format, which is great. I did realize, though, I'd be in trouble if I said that the one daily thing everyone should read is Coverager. That That's not clickbait. Course, you have to read course, Coverager. Yes. <laughs> all of our love to... Uh, to the Benchuta family, Avi, Sheffi, and the rest of their siblings. We love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the daily newsletter. Wonderful. Great. Jim, thank you very, very, very much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure hosting you here. Yeah, thank you. I love the format of uh, just more casual conversation. And thanks for inviting me. It was, it was fun.